hey, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. Um, in case you are new or newer, in case maybe somehow you're with a friend and you're watching online or um, maybe you missed a week or two, I want to remind you what Hebrews is. Um, Hebrews is a book that was written to Jewish believers. So they're Jewish in culture. Uh, they grew up in that. They're second-generation believers. Most likely they're, they never saw Jesus or maybe they never even met any of the disciples. Uh, but they're getting a letter from the apostle, from an apostle. And here's the idea. They've really now not left Judaism, but they've so believed in Jesus. Their faith is in Jesus that they don't go to the temple. They don't offer sacrifices. Um, the temple is still around. This was written around 60 AD where there was still a temple. Um, you would miss that. You'd miss your culture. You'd miss maybe your family or friend group. They've really left a lot to follow Jesus. Um, Jewish believers at this point in time, uh, we know they're under extreme persecution. Caesar Nero was in control. Uh, Nero was a terribly wicked guy. Uh, he was known for feeding Christians to, lion, to lions, to lighting people on fire, to just having really creative ways to hurt and harm followers of Jesus. And so the author is writing this letter to basically say, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't go back. I know that we walk by faith. I know the temple is physical. You can taste, see, smell. It's, you're leaving those physical things to walk by faith. And really the whole point of Hebrews is fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. See Jesus. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than it all. And so he's trying to actually show the Old Testament how all of those things were really just a shadow of Jesus. That Jesus was the substance. That Jesus was the reality. And so Jesus is greater. That is the point over and over again. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And so last week in chapter 2, we, we looked at the idea. He, he warns us. The first of five warnings. He says, if you neglect this salvation, he goes, there's a warning. Uh, if you drift away, he goes, You're, how great do you fall into judgment if you neglect or, or drift? So there's a warning in the chapter 2. And now we're kind of continuing this thought. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through 18. And he's talking about how Jesus had to become a man, how he had to suffer and die, how he had to become our high priest for us. So we'll put this up here. Here's a summary sentence of what we're going to be talking about today. Here's the idea. Jesus's humanity allows him to destroy the power of Satan, help those being tempted, and provides full propitiation for the sins of the people. I'll say that again. The summary of verse 10 through 18, Jesus' humanity allows him to destroy the power of Satan, help those being tempted, and provides full propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, basically, here in these verses that we're going to look at, Jesus disarms fear, Jesus disarms Satan, and the power he holds over us when it comes to the fear of death. And so Jesus is disarming fear. Um, I think this will be an appropriate, timely word for us as a culture, as a nation, as a world, is just how do we disarm fear? How do we not let fear rule us? And so let's just read. It's Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read verse 10 through 18. Um, let's read it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says, It was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not, Jesus is not ashamed to call them or us brethren or brothers, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch, verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, 
that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren. He had to be made human, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Let's pray. Jesus, again, we thank you that you are a faithful and merciful high priest, that you were tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus, we ask that um, we would truly put ourselves in these Hebrew believers' sandals <laughs> for a moment and just ex- really consider what it is they are walking through. Consider the persecution. Consider the fear. And Jesus, we ask that um, your word would just be so real to us, that you'd make it alive to us, that you would also disarm fear in our lives, that we would realize that, Jesus, you've already won. And so, God, please be here. Please speak in your name. Amen. You know, um, it's been quite a week. I know you guys know it's been the weirdest week probably in my life. I feel like every hour things are changing. We get one piece of information, then it changes. It's just been a bizarre week. The NBA is canceled. March Madness is canceled. All sports are canceled. Every wife's prayers have been answered for all sports being canceled. Um, but it's such a weird week. And it's one of those weeks where I feel like just fear has engulfed a lot of us. You know, I was at Trader Joe's yesterday, and you just kind of see people, you know, wearing masks, and I understand they, they have to for health reasons, but you see the panic and look in their eyes. They're just buying things that we probably don't need. If you have all the toilet paper, will you please share the wealth, because we need some. Um, but it's just weird. It's been like a crazy pandemic. There's just fear overtaking all of us. Um, I was outside studying for this on Thursday, and I'm at the table outside, and my son comes to the backyard. He goes, Dad, he's like, get out, get out. To come inside. I'm like, why? He's like, coronavirus is outside. It's out there. Get inside. And I'm like, no. I'm like, it's okay. And he's like, dad, get in. He's trying to convince me. And then, first of all, as a parent, you're thinking, how did I put fear in him? Like, how does he know about this? How is he so afraid of this? And there's like that conviction. Um, but I just see it happening to everyone. I mean, this is, this is a fear that's overtaking a lot of us. Um, again, it's interesting. On I think it was two nights ago, my son woke up at 3 a.m. He comes crying to our door. He's just freaked out, screaming. I pick him up. I'm like, Micah, what's wrong? He goes, I had a bad dream. And I opened my eyes and I saw a scary face. Daddy, I'm so scared. So I picked him up. I walk into his bedroom and I just prayed over him. I prayed over his room. I was praying over what was happening. I asked Micah this question. I said, Micah, if God is for you, who can be against you? And he said, no one. I'm like, Micah, if God is for you, who can be against you? Is no one. And I was like, that's right. God's for you, Micah. So no one can be against you. So don't be scared. And we prayed again and he went back to sleep. And I'm sharing that because here's what happened. Um, we have fear. We have anxiety. And I th- what was the solution for him is the solution for us, which is we need prayer. We need prayer right now. We need scripture. We need to be reminded of that truth, that if God is for us, who can be against us? What can be against us? And I think there's just this overall sense of fear. I think in many ways we might be fearing um, the wrong thing. You know, the Bible, actually, the number one command in the Bible is fear not. Fear not is shared over 365 times saying, fear not, fear not, do not fear. That is the number one imperative in the Bible. And I think God says it a lot because he knows our heart is prone to fear. Like, why would it say it so much unless we are so prone to fear? 
So God's saying, fear not, fear not, fear not. There's one thing in scriptures we're really told to fear, and that's to have the fear of the Lord. Jesus told us the same thing in Matthew 10. I want to read the verse. It's Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill a soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Jesus basically says, we fear the wrong things. We, feel, we fear people. We fear circumstances. We fear epidemics. We fear all these different things. He goes, you should have the fear of God. Because all those things can only destroy one thing, that's our body. But he goes, God has the power over both. Here's the idea. I want to make sure we have the right type of fear, that we have the fear of the Lord in our lives, not the fear of something else. Maybe you saw this. This was interesting. Um, C.S. Lewis actually wrote something 72 years ago about the atomic bomb and how it was affecting his society and his culture. And he wrote like an article. He wrote a response to the fear that was happening in his time period because of the atomic bomb. And I want to read it. And it's a great, it's a long quote. We'll put it up. You can read it with us. Um, but I want you to read it. And when we come across the word atomic bomb, replace it with coronavirus. Because I think it's very fitting. Listen to what he says. This is 72 years ago. Written about a very real fear, uh, nuclear warfare. He says, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb or of the coronavirus. He says, how are we to live in an atomic age, in an age driven by viruses. He says, I am tempted to reply why as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat at any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, uh, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. He goes on to say, in other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. Therefore, he says, the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by, fill in that blank, let that bomb when it, let, let that bomb when it comes find us doing sensibly and, and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs or the virus, they may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, he said, uh, but they uh, need not dominate our minds. Again, they may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. Listen, I don't think he's necessarily making light of the atomic bomb. Um, obviously, that's a very real danger, but he's basically saying it cannot rule us the way it's ruling us. We need to carry on. We need to do life. He goes, listen, we're avoiding the inevitable. We're all going to pass. We're all going to die. There's already hundreds of creative ways he says we're going to die. I think what I'm bringing this up today is saying, hey, how do we not let this rule us? How do we disarm fear? How do we say this does not rule me? This will not control me. What was happening here, remember the author's context, he's writing to Christians who are being fed to lions. He's writing to Christians who had to go underground. He's writing to Christians who the church could not gather in large groups, but had to meet in small groups. And he's saying, don't fear. He's saying, don't forget who your savior is, the founder, the captain, the pioneer of our salvation. Uh, don't forget what he saved us from. He subdued Satan 
and he disarmed fear. That you and I do not need to be afraid. Listen, I don't want to undermine the seriousness of what's happening. I know that we do need to take uh, just caution. If you are sick, if you are not doing well, if maybe you could potentially harm someone, we've got to be very wise right now. But I think that we can also tend to let this overrule us. It, we can be people with angst and anxiety and fear. And here's the thing. This is time for us to step up. Let me just say this. This has been when church, uh, the church throughout history has stepped up. We've stepped up the most under epidemics, plague, loss, I mean, you think about just church history, uh, whether it's in Rome, whether it's during the Black Plague, the church was known for not self-preserving, but from going out, helping, assisting, meeting those in need. I want to read to you uh, a quote by an emperor who hated Christians. Their people were dying from the plague, and Christians were stepping up. And here's what he said. He said, for it is a disgrace that the impious, or, or I can't say, impious, whatever, Galileans, the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. He goes, it's a disgrace that these Christians support not only their poor, but ours. He's like, the Christians are stepping up right now. And this frustrated uh, a secular leader. This frustrated a person who did not view Jesus or Christians highly. He goes, I can't believe they're stepping up right now. This is what we're known for. One author said this, uh, if the non-Christian response is to, pl- uh, to the plague was characterized by self-protection, self-preservation, and avoiding the sick at all costs, the Christian response was the opposite. So during the plague, during these different movements, the, the response by the non-believing world was we need to preserve ourselves, we need to be safe, and he's, saying, and he's saying, and the Christian's response has always been the opposite. They didn't let fear rule them. They engaged. They met needs. They loved. They supported. So here's how we're going to look at Hebrews 10 today. Um, we're going to break this section into four, and break this area into four sections. Um, here's the first point. Do not fear. The author is saying, do not fear. Jesus suffered for our salvation. Number two, do not fear. Jesus says we're sons and brothers. Number three, Jesus says, or do not fear. Jesus subdued Satan. And number four, do not fear. Jesus supports the saints. He supports the believers. So let's look at this in depth. Do not fear. Jesus suffered for our salvation. Do not fear, Jesus suffered for our salvation. Let's look at verse 10 again. Verse 10. I know it's hard. Open your Bible. Make sure you write this down. Take notes. All right. For it was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified or being sanctified are all of one. First thing. There's a unique title given to Jesus. He's, he's called the captain of our salvation. The captain of our salvation. You can circle that word captain. It is a unique word in the New Testament only used of Jesus. And I want you to hear what this word means. Uh, this work, which I'm going to, this word is, I'm going to butcher it. It's archagos. It means captain, pioneer, completer, founder, finisher, champion. Jesus is the completer of our salvation. He's the founder of our salvation. He's the finisher of our salvation. He's the pioneer of our salvation. He's the, so he's saying he's the captain. He leads the way. Jesus gives the orders. What he says goes. He's the captain. He says, if you do, the, do this, we do this. If he says, go there, we go there. He's the pioneer. He's the, he's the trailblazer. He's the one who went before us. He's the champion of our salvation. I love that idea of the, he's the captain. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this about this verse. He says, Now, seeing that it is the will of the Lord to lead us to glory by the captain of our salvation, I want you to be worthy of your leader. Do you not think that sometimes we act as if we had no captain? We fancy that we have to fight our way to heaven, 
by the might of our own right hand and our, by our own skill. But it is not so. If you start before your captain gives you the order to march, you have to come back again. And if you try to fight apart from your captain, you will regret the day. So we follow his lead. He's the captain. He's the author. He's the completer. He's the champion. This phrase, the captain of our salvation, the champion of our salvation, is very interesting. It brings you to this word idea, or this word picture of um, back in the day when there's a battle between two army, armies, many times they would send a representative from each army to battle. So think the Trojan War, the fictional story of the Trojan War. Think Hector versus Achilles. They're sending their person into battle to say, if this person wins, it's an example of how our whole army wins. Think David and Goliath. That's probably the best example. It's, we're going to send our best, Goliath, versus what they thought their worst, David. And the idea was, if our guy wins, we take it all. If your guy wins, you take it all. And the idea for us is that Jesus is the champion. Jesus went before us. Because he won, because he won it all, we win. He was our, our representative that went out to fight the battle for us, and Jesus came back the victor. And because Jesus won, because he's the champion, because he's the pioneer, we now win. See, here's the idea. Do not fear. Jesus suffered for our salvation. Do not fear. The champion, the pioneer of our salvation went out. He fought the battle. He won. Now, here's the phrase that I find very interesting. It says he bring, bringing many sons to glory. That in the process of this, Jesus goes, I want to bring you to glory. My victory is your, your victory. That the whole idea of, of verse 10 is saying, listen, we were created by God for his glory. Uh, to be people who are billboards, walking billboards for Jesus. Walking billboards for the glory of God to bring attention to God, to bring focus to God, that because, again, he won, we win. Now, there's this phrase that might throw you off in verse 10. In case you read that, you're like, wait a second, what does it say here? Here's the verse. It says, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So you might be thinking, wait, how is Jesus made perfect? Is Jesus made perfect through sufferings? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying Jesus is the perfect one. Jesus is the only one who could actually complete the work for us. So it's not that he was made perfect. The idea is he's saying he was perfectly equipped to meet our needs. He's perfectly equipped to, to conquer sin and hell and death because he's the only one who's God and man. He's the only one who could satisfy God's righteous wrath forever being God. And as man, he also came to die. There's no one else who's that perfect savior who could meet those needs in that way. And he's, again, he did this through suffering. A theme of Hebrews we're going to look at as we move forward is just suffering. How Jesus really did suffer. Now, we don't want to downplay this or think about like kind of the flannel graph Jesus who is like perfect and sinless. Like you, 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 he was sinless, but you don't want to see him as like the perfect one who's just, you know, flawed. He never suffered. He never experienced pain. No, Jesus suffered. Jesus experienced pain. Jesus had suffer and loss. He knows what it's like for us to, to suffer. He also gets to that in verse 18. But he's saying, Jesus, listen, don't fear because Jesus suffered for our salvation. And verse 11, he's the one who sanctifies. He suffers so he could sanctify us. So not only does Jesus make us a new creation, not only reborn again, but he's saying you're now set apart for Jesus because he suffered. Um, Alan Redpath said this, a pastor wrote, the, con the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. It's just a moment. But the manufacture of a saints is the task of a lifetime. That Jesus is making us more and more like him. Um, again, listen, church, don't fear. We have a captain. We have a savior. We have a pioneer. Don't fear. 
Number two is great. He says, do not fear. Jesus says we're sons. We're brothers. Look again at verse 11 towards the end. Verse 11, the author says this, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. He says we're sons and we're brothers. We'll put the verses up, but just so you can see them as a whole. He says, bringing many sons to glory. I will declare your name to my brethren. And here am I and the children whom God has given me. Here's the author's point. We're brothers, we're family, we're sons. He said, you're part of the family. Don't fear, you're part of the family. Don't fear, Jesus is not ashamed of you. That is a crazy verse. He's not ashamed of us. Um, if anyone should be ashamed of anyone, um, it's Jesus of us. Uh, I don't know if you have a family member that you're kind of partially ashamed of. Maybe you're like, I have want no one to know that they are related to us. Um, I, I want no one to realize that this person is my blood, my flesh and my blood. Um, you think if someone could be ashamed, it'd be Jesus of us. And here's what the author's saying, he's not ashamed. Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, he's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God of salvation. I think so often we're the ones who are ashamed of Jesus, and yet Jesus is not ashamed of us. He's like, you're my family. You're my sons. I brought you into glory. You're my brethren. You're my brothers. Um, and I, here's why I'm saying all of this. Listen, every family has a culture. If you go right now to my family, if I go to your family, if I eat dinner with you, the way you joke, what you joke about, what you talk about, the weird dynamics between siblings or parents, every family has some sort of culture happening. Every family has some sort of dynamics. Maybe you love your family's culture. Maybe you're like ashamed of your family's culture. But every family has some sort of, of culture happening. And here's what he says. He says, we will sing praise. I will sing praises with my brothers. So here's the culture of Jesus' family is that we're a culture of worship. We're a culture that sings with Jesus. We worship with him. We worship him. But he's like, we get to sing to God our Father in this, in this brotherhood. Like, we have this unique family kind of dynamic happening. Now, I'm sharing this because, again, every family has a culture. And here's what I want you to think about. When it comes to following Jesus, here, here's the idea. Jesus said, you will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Um, this is our culture. This is how we're supposed to be marked. As followers of Jesus, our culture is being marked by love. As followers of Jesus, this is what we should be known for. We're sons, we're brothers. And so I want us to think through this. Under this heading of love, what does this look like? Um, I'll give you a few thoughts. Um, this looks like hospitality, being hospitable. Um, if there's truly love for each other, if there's love for the lost, we should be incredibly hospitable. I want to encourage you guys for the next few weeks to really open up your homes in maybe unique ways where maybe we can't gather in very large groups, but we can in, in smaller settings and smaller groups. And I want to encourage you, be hospitable. Like, open up your home, open up your lives, invite people in, not just your friend group, not just people you're comfortable with, but this is the time to show true hospitality, like Romans 12 talks about, uh, like Hebrews 13 talks about, that the church is marked by hospitality. Um, this is the culture of our families. We should be the most inclusive people on earth, that we should say all are welcome all are welcome to the family of God, and it's only through the person of Jesus. So we're the most inclusive family, and the exclusivity is through Jesus. But this is for everyone. Jesus, remember verse 10, that he might taste death for everyone. We want to be hosp hospitable right now. This is the time where people, again, are about self-preserving. Let us be hospitable. Um, also, keep going with this, the idea of love. Um, in our family, there's serving. There's service. And when you think about brothers, when you think about sons, in your family, you have a role. You probably had a chore growing up, whether that was mowing the lawn or doing the dishes or taking out the garbage. Everyone kind of has that role in their family. Um, in the body of Christ, we all need to have that, that role, some role. We all play a part. Um, if you've been coming to church for a while or you've been a part of the Christian community for a while, 
and you're still not serving. Um, it's kind of like when you have a little kid, the older they get, the more you give them responsibility, the more it's like, hey, um, you're like 15. It's time to start doing the dishes. Um, hey, you're like 25. It's time to start, you know, paying the bill. Like, you got to be a part of this. So in our culture, in our family, um, we're going to have a culture that serves. As you mature and grow in your faith, you're going to be part of serving. This is just going to be part of it. Not only that, um, but we're going to have a culture under love. We're going to have a culture that forgives. Um, in families, there's issues. There's fighting. There's problems. There's arguments. There's disagreements. Listen, we're going to be known for love, for forgiving. Um, we're going to be known for saying, I'm going to go to you and say, hey, you hurt me, and I just want you to know, but I forgive you. And I, you know, we're going to be those who seek reconciliation. We're going to be those who seek to forgive. If someone says, I'm so sorry I hurt you, will you forgive me? Like, we're going we're gonna to own that. We're going to love that. We're going to be a part of that because that's going to happen a lot. Um, again, every family has a culture. Our culture is going to be one that forgives. And lastly, we're going to be a, a family that is generous. Right now, people are scared. Right now, people are hoarding. So again, if you are the one who went to the store and bought all the toilet paper, shame on you. Um, we need some. Um, but the idea is right now, we have really a weird time period where people are self-preserving. They're saying, me and my needs, my family needs, that's what matters. People are buying things and selling them 10 times what they, what they cost. As the church, we're going to be generous. As a church, we're going to say, hey, you even need it. How can we meet it? I really mean this. I really hope we can fight for this. This is one of those things where, again, during moments of crisis or pandemic, this is when we kind of get tight with our pocketbooks. This is when we say, no, no, I need this. And again, we're going to be marked by our generosity. This is so important in a family culture. What kind of culture are we creating? And the church is known and always has been known for its extreme generosity. So listen, here's what the author is saying. Um, we don't need to fear. We have one who calls us a son and a brother. We don't need to fear because Jesus says we're sons. Number three, and this is so powerful. We're going to see this in verse uh, 14. We're going to see number three again. Do not fear. Jesus subdued Satan. Let's read verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Let's read it. Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he has himself likewise shared in the same. And through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Okay, so he's saying Jesus conquered two things on that cross. He conquered the devil and this fear of death that the devil uses, that he hangs over our head. So Jesus conquered, he subdued Satan, and he disarmed and removed the fear of death. I want us to get that. Let's talk first about how he conquered, subdued Satan. Um, sometimes as Christians, we don't do with the, our theology of Satan. Who is he? How does he interfere with our lives? What does that look like? What do fallen angels or demons, what, how does that interfere with us? Um, I think that there's extremes we can take. We can over-spiritualize things where Satan is a part of everything and anything. Where if your coffee is like lukewarm, it's like, that's Satan who did it. Like we can just be so weird as Christians. Um, I think we can make cartoons out of him, almost just like minimize his work, minimize the effects he has in our world. Um, we don't want to overemphasize or underemphasize. Um, we want to approach this well. How is he at work? So here's the idea. Satan has lost the war. Absolutely. Jesus conquered sin, hell, death, Satan. He's lost the war, but there's still these little battles going on. So even though he's lost and he know he's lost, he's also saying, how can I try to win in these small moments? I don't know why this illustration comes to my mind, but if you've ever been like pushed in a pool, um, your mindset is, oh my gosh, I'm falling. I'm going to take whoever I can with me, right? Like you're like, falling back in a pool and you're like, you're coming with me. That's what Satan's trying to do right now. He's lost. He's falling back. And he's like, I'm going to try to take as many people as I can with me at this point in time. Um, why I'm saying this is I think we need to have a right understanding of Satan. He's lost. He's lost the war. We know the end of the story. We know the end of Revelation. We know what happens. We know that he's cast into the lake of fire forever. We know that there will be a time period before that where he'll have a thousand years, we're told, to tempt the world, but he, will be, he loses forever. 
Satan has lost. He's lost the war. But there's these little battles he's still trying to fight. And we have to be aware. The, the works of the devil, remember, remember, Satan is called the father of all lies. Satan is the, the great deceiver. Satan is the one who tries to trick us. Something that's, he says, this is truth when it's, it's not truth. He'll try to tell us things about ourselves or others and say, this is truth. In reality, it's not truth. Um, there's a question that was asked to a bunch of pastors. Here is the question. It says, what would a city look like that was completely ruled by the devil? And all the pastors were answering, Sodom and Gomorrah, it looked like that. It looked like one of the cities Jesus visited and they didn't receive him. And one pastor named Donald Barnhouse said this. He says, here's what a city would look like that was completely ruled by the devil. Every lawn would be mowed and every bridge would be clean of graffiti. No one would drive over the speed limit. Children would be obedient to parents. Marriages would remain intact and every church would have a beautiful building. However, the gospel would not be preached at any place or in any pulpit because the devil's primary ambition is to prevent the gospel from being preached. The devil's aim is to keep people from being, believing the gospel. He will even use moralism and the appearance of perfection to accomplish that end. Here's the point I believe he's trying to make amongst all these peers and pastors of his friends. He's saying, um, it's not always going to look like Sodom and Gomorrah. The way the enemy might move and work, it might look different. And we have to be aware of his tactics. Be aware of how he works. Jesus conquered sin, hell, death, Satan. He subdued him. But there's still his little, he's still trying to win the little battles. He's still trying to bring as many people as he can with him. But you got to know this, Jesus won. And here's what he's saying. Verse 15 says, and he disarmed fear. He removed the fear of bondage. Please don't miss this. Verse 15, he wanted to release those, or he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Um, Death is something we all hate. If you've experienced the loss of a friend, a loved one, a family member, we, we hate death. I hate death. I hate the idea of it. I hate what it does. When God created the world, he created it good. He created it to last. He said, the day you rebel, the day you eat of this fruit, you will die. Death was not God's original desire or intent for us. Death is a part of the curse or fall. Death is one of those things where we try to like kind of cover it up. If you look around or drive around South Florida, we don't we might see a cemetery here or there, but we kind of hide them. We put flowers. We try to make it look beautiful. We don't want to become face-to-face with the pain of death. We try our best to stay really busy, to not think about our own mortality. Things like this virus, things, big events that take the nation kind of by storm, once in a while will wake us up to going, what, what is this all about? You know, how much longer do we have? Do I have? It's something we, we try to avoid. There is the fear of death. If you read poets or philosophers, Believers and non-believers, there's, there's this idea that death is looming over all of us. Death is chasing after all of us. And what do we do with that? Like, how do we respond as believers? Um, I love this verse because he's saying, Jesus has disarmed Satan. He's removed the bondage of the fear of death. That no one, you don't want to necessarily die, but the fear of death is removed. So let me put it this way. All right, let me just give you a crazy weird illustration. Just stick with me. And if it's weird, just stick with me. If someone were to come into your house right now and bring a gun, or someone come in here in this building and wave a gun in my face, um, and they, they had a gun, they're showing it to me, I'm gonna, naturally, I'm going to be afraid. Like my first instinct is to have fear. That's natural. We're flesh and blood. We're going to have fear. And if they have this gun, in a sense, they have the power. If they say, do this, I'm going to do this. If they say, sit down, lay down, they have that power. Because in my mind, there's bullets in there, and they have power to end my life. And so there's fear. Now, let's just say that in this gun, there are six chambers. And let's just say they pull the, chamber, the gun six times, boom, 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 six times. And you realize nothing's in there. No bullet ever came out. There's never bullets in this gun. They did it six times. Listen, pass or not, um, we're going to go at it, right? Like, for you guys, you, you look at that. If that were to happen, you go, this is, this is, the power they once had has been removed. Now, here's the idea. There was true fear. They had a gun. 
We were genuinely afraid. We actually thought they had power over us. We gave them power over us because what we thought. Here's the idea. Jesus took the gun and emptied the bullets. He emptied the chamber. There was this gun, but there was no bullets. They had power over us, but it's all a lie. Satan likes to hold things over our heads like it's truth. It, it, for us, it's truth. It feels like truth, but in reality, there's nothing inside. See, here's the idea. It's Paul saying, death, where's your sting? You can, I can die, but I'll always live. Though I die, I shall live. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That thing once ruled me. That used to have power over me. He's saying, as followers of Jesus, death used to haunt everyone, haunts everyone. But as followers of Jesus, he's removed and released the fear of death. That's been removed. It's one of those things where you say, you know what? Death, I love, I love this expression. Jesus made death, the enemy we all feared. He turned him into a gardener. Because a gardener plants something and life comes out. Death now, all it can do is plant us into the ground, but life comes out. See, Jesus turned our greatest fear, the fear of death, into a gardener. Though you die, if you believe in Jesus, you shall live. Listen, Jesus disarmed the fear and the fear of death. Our great enemy, the last enemy the Bible says. I want you to be encouraged by that. That Satan's tactics, though he might come in waving a gun and cause genuine fear, real fear, there's really no power behind it. There's no power behind it. It might look like a power, it might look like authority. We've got to be reminded that Jesus disarmed and subdued him. That Jesus subdued Satan. Listen, church, he says, do not fear. Jesus subdued Satan. Do not fear. Jesus removed the power of death. And last, number four, do not fear. Jesus supports the saints. He says it twice. He gives aid to us. So look at this. Verse 16, Jesus supports the saints. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that, he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid or support those who are tempted. Twice he says, he is able to support or aid us. Jesus does not, verse 16, support the angels. He does not aid the angels, but he does us. He supports the aid of Abraham. Jesus, being tempted, is able to support us. Now here's the idea. He says in verse 17, Jesus became human. He became like his brethren so that he might be high priest. Now, the idea of Jesus being our great high priest is going to be talked about a lot more in Hebrews. And we're going to do a study specifically on Jesus, our high, pri- our, our high priest soon. But the idea of a priest is this. The priest represents the person between man and God. The priest is like, I'm going to go on behalf of man to God. The priest is the one who atoned for the sins of the people. The high priest is the one who atoned for the sins of the people one day a year. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. Let me explain two words, and I want to define it. Um, I'll just do this because I need to try to do this. Um, Say the word propitiation at home. I'm just imagining you're doing that. Okay. Um, Say propitiation. Say expiation. Expiation. When it comes to salvation, there's two things. There's expiation. Expiation is Jesus cancels our debt. Jesus cancels our sin. Propitiation That is the idea that Jesus paid for that. Payment was made. Whenever there's sin, we're in debt. Payment must be made for sin. And so Jesus satisfied the righteous requirement, the righteous wrath of God by dying. The high priest who used to take lamb's blood, our high priest Jesus became the lamb. Our high priest, Jesus, did not just throw random blood and say, God, forgive them. He became the lamb and shed his blood. 
And he's saying, Jesus became man. He was merciful. He was faithful. He satisfied the righteous requirement. Listen, you and I, in a sense, you could say we're in debt to God because of our sin. There is a debt we could never pay. We had an eternal debt. There's no way we could ever pay for our sin, but Jesus and his eternal blood, the fact that he's fully God, fully man, the fact that his, it's not a lamb that's temporary. Jesus is the lamb of God that's eternal. He can pay for our sins for all of eternity. He made propitiation for our sins. He's saying, this is how Jesus aids you. Jesus supports you. This is how he does it. He's our, he's our high priest. He goes on our behalf. You know, we're told that, that not only is he our high priest, but he's our advocate. So when you and I sin, he goes, you know what, God, Father, um, I died for his sins. He's covered. He makes, he, we're told in 1 John 2, he's the advocate with the Father. That he goes on our behalf and says, he or she is mine. Listen, do not fear. Jesus supports the saints, us believers. Jesus goes on our behalf. Verse 18 is a verse we're going to spend a lot more time on in chapter 4. But verse 18, we'll read it again. It says, for in that he himself has suffered... Being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Um, we will look at the temptation of Jesus in the future, but Hebrews 4 makes it clear. This verse makes it clear. He was tempted in all points as we are. He was tempted. Um, we'll look at how was Jesus tempted in the future. How does that make sense? How can he be tempted? Listen, being tempted is not a sin. Acting upon the temptation is sin. Being tempted is not a sin, but acting upon the temptation is sin. He was tempted. He never gave in. But he's also able to aid us and support us. So, for example, if you're going through something, it's nice to know that someone who's trying to help you out has also gone through that. Um, when my wife was giving birth and she was going through extreme pain, the worst thing I could have done was walk up to her and say, hey, babe, I know what you're going through. That would have been the worst thing I could have done. That would have been a giant punch in my face and I'd have no teeth. Um, but if there's, and there was, women doctors in the room, she had a midwife, she had people who knew what they were doing who also literally had children of their own. And they say, I know it's painful. I know it's painful. Take a deep breath. I, and when they say, I know it's painful, and they sympathize, and they empathize, and they say, I get it. I get it, but you can handle this. I get it, but you can do this. I'm with you. I'm here with you. It, it means so much more coming from them than it would for me. And Jesus is saying, I get it. I get it. I know what it's like to be broke and homeless. I know what it's like to, ha- to go through epidemic. First century Rome, a Roman empire, Jerusalem. Man, do you not know what the, the plagues they went through, the polio, all the things that happened in their empire? Jesus goes, I get it. I get what you're walking through. I know what it's like to have a, a best friend, a loved one, pass away and die. I know what it's like to be rejected by your own. I know what it's like to have no friends. People leave you and abandon you. I get it. I know what it's like to, he took on the sin of the world. Jesus is like, I get it. I get it. See, Jesus can aid us. He can support us because he walked through it. That will change how we pray. That will change how we view Jesus. We need to understand and embrace the humanity of Jesus. It's beautiful. Jesus is fully God, yes. Jesus is also fully man. And when I understand his humanity, that he was sleepy, he was tired, he got hungry, he, he had loved ones who passed, when I understand that, it changes how I approach him. It changes how I pray to him and talk to him. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't fear, don't fear. Jesus subdued Satan. Jesus conquered sin and hell and death. Jesus is your high priest. Don't fear. He can aid you when times you're tempted. He can support you. And honestly, church, more than ever, I feel like this is something I needed to read, where I go, God, so many things are different now, you know, whether it's Easter, extravaganza, whether it's meeting with you guys, I'm, you know, on Sundays, I miss that. Um, Lord, it's so, it's so different. He's like, I get it. I get it. And I'm going to support you through this. I'm going to be with you through this. I'm your faithful, merciful high priest. Um, listen, here's our desire. Our desire is to take what we 
discuss on Sundays. And as we move forward, as, as long as we meet in homes, we want to communicate this with our spouse, our kids, um, people from the church. We're going to try to develop this more where we want you guys to open up your homes or go to other homes and really walk through the text together. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put some questions. We're going to put some questions on the screen. Um, if you want with your phone to take some pictures of those questions, because it won't be there for very long, uh, but take, take a picture of the, photo of the screens coming up and then just talk about it, dialogue about it. Um, hopefully, as we move forward, we want you guys to eat a meal after this to do what Acts says. They continued in the Apostles' Doctrine, which we're doing in Hebrews. The Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. We're going to be doing that. That's what the next few le- weeks are going to be looking like. In homes, with the Apostles' Doctrine, with fellowship, with breaking of bread, over a meal, remembering Jesus. Um, we're going to be doing that. And so I want to encourage you guys, please take some photos of this. Um, I'm going to end in prayer. We're going to leave these questions up here for a little bit. Um, Thank you for not just tuning in, but taking notes and being a part of this. I pray that the Spirit met you where you're at. Um, I pray that he would remove all fear because Jesus is the one who conquered sin, hell, and death on our behalf. Um, So listen, we love you. Please, again, remember this. Follow us on social media to stay up to date with what's happening. Sign up for our newsletter. Um, If you have any questions, you can email us, email the church. Um, We would love to answer any questions you might have. Um, But please stay up to date. We're going to be posting a lot the next week about how this is going to look and what we're going to be doing. Um, Again, we love you guys. So thankful for you guys. I miss you guys today. It's a really empty room and it's really weird. Um, But let me just pray and um, we'll let you guys take some of these questions and discuss them. All right, let's pray. Father, we again are so grateful that we can still meet in homes and do this that we can seek you, God, how we look to you, how, God, I ask that you would transcend maybe the confusion of just um, not being in person, not being live. But Jesus, I thank you that you still meet us, that you're faithful. God, that you will transcend that. Jesus, I ask that you take these questions and produce fruit, produce life, life change. God, even the people, the few people in this room who help with worship and production and setup and greeting, Jesus, we just ask that you would um, just speak to all of us wherever we're at, wherever we're scattered. Jesus, thank you for gathering your church and scattering your church and gathering your church and that we come together and you send us, that we come together and you send us. We just thank you, Jesus. We look forward to how you're going to use this. We want to right now even thank you because, God, you are bigger than all of this. So, Jesus, we ask that we would not fear. We would take that very serious, take it to heart, that we'd be people who walk around with peace at this moment. We love you, Lord, and uh, we just thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. Have a great discussion. Uh, We'll see you in groups this week. Bye.